Today's story continues our series on startup scenes across the Middle East, this time looking at the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, and more specifically, one of its fastest growing emirates or cities, Dubai. Dubai is my current hometown, and like any other major international city, is fast-paced, full of tall buildings, and a broad mix of 200-some-odd nationalities walking its streets. The UAE itself formed in 1971, so as a new city, Dubai has done a tremendous job developing its brand and status as a global player in such a short time. It ranks among cities like Tokyo, London, Paris, New York, and one angle to this marketing is the perception that Dubai is a city of opportunity. Anything is possible here. You see this in droves. Many people are moving to Dubai to try their hands at entrepreneurship and starting companies. And this is intentional. Entrepreneurship and innovation are national priorities, wherein the government aims by 2021 to rank number one in the world in ease of doing business and among the top 10 countries in global entrepreneurship and innovation indices. So the question for today's show, is Dubai the next Silicon Valley of the Middle East? This is Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Ladies and gentlemen, we're approaching the International Airport in Dubai. Local time is a quarter to 11 in the evening. To fasten your seatbelt, back of your seat to the upright position and stow your tray We have a few stories for you today, each, we hope, shining a little more light onto the dynamics of building a startup in the UAE. Let's start with an individual who moved to Dubai two years ago from Paris to start what is now one of the most active angel investment networks in the region. So what what is your story? We all got stories. You gotta gotta tell me which one you want to (laughs) hear. This is Elisa Freyha. She's the co-founder and director of sales and marketing for Womina, a women's angel investment network in the UAE dedicated to bringing women into the startup investment space. So I was born and raised in Paris, and I have a Lebanese father and an American mother and we were lucky enough to always have a base in the UAE so my dad was nationalized mm. how does one get nationalized I they they do yeah. and they don't and you know what I've met other I've met two other Lebanese people like people with Lebanese origins in Dubai that have been nationalized and it I swear it's like meeting a leprechaun yeah. like I met, I met another girl who's half Lebanese, half American, like me, nationalized Emirati and Christian, which is super rare. And I looked at her and I was like, oh my God, like, <laughs> you're a unicorn of a human. This is fantastic. We have to be best friends or enemies at this point. You know, this is a phenomenal find. Um, so I was living like the ultimate vie bohème in Paris before I came. La vie bohème, like the bohemian life, right? <laughs> Where I was in my last year of university, studying global communications because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I was working full-time at a bakery um, that made American cakes, you know? Like, the, with those crazy wedding cakes and those birthday cakes in the shape of, like, a hamburger or, like, <laughs> the Eiffel Tower or something, you know? So I, I was doing that. And I had, like, a packed schedule, but it was so artsy. And then one of my, my last class in university was, like, oil painting. So I would go from like my painting classes to my bakery and then I would spend my Sundays at, you know, my favorite blues club and like right next to the Notre Dame and, you know, it's just so bohemian and, and hippie and wonderful. And so when I finished university, I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to start my own business. If I wanted to move, I wanted to move to the polar opposite of Paris. I wanted to move to something that was totally not historical, totally not traditional. 
uh, really innovative, really exciting, full of opportunity, full of hope. And I saw Dubai as that place, right? Honestly, if you look at the Middle East, or honestly, you look at the world in general, there's no better place to start a business right now than the UAE. Over the course of this episode, we're going to scratch a bit at this image of Dubai and try to understand where it comes from and how true it might be. I want you to meet another entrepreneur, Alborz, who chose to come to Dubai three years ago because of the market opportunity he saw for his startup. Am I speaking loud enough? Yeah, you're speaking loud enough. Yeah, okay. I'm Alborz. My parents are originally from Iran, but I was born and raised in Germany. So why did you move to Dubai in the first place? Um, I moved here to start my tech startup. Snapcard? Yeah. Snapcard is a loyalty program in a mobile app form. You know like those buy 10 coffees get your 11th free punch cards? He's designed a beautiful mobile app so you don't have to stuff your wallet with those cards anymore. And Snapcard now has over 400 merchants listed on their platform and operates in three countries. So I decided on the product before I decided on the market. My decision was always between either Dubai or Istanbul. I didn't want to do it in Germany because there was already people doing it and I wanted to get out of there. So Istanbul obviously has the advantages of the mass. 20 million population, 600,000 merchants, a lot of merchants. That was that one side. The, the reason why I chose to buy was just some, a few rational decisions. Um, of one of them, which is the highest smartphone penetration in the world. In addition to the highest smartphone penetration in the world, Albers also told me that Dubai has among the most bustling food, beverage, and hospitality industries. And when you're trying to build a mobile loyalty business, that's a pretty good market to be in. That was the main part. And then on top of that, um, t- no taxes is great. Yeah. And then what I always said, what I love about Dubai is, is my first year and until now, I work a lot. I used to work 14 hours a day, seven days a week. But I always said those two hours I don't work, I can enjoy myself. That's, that was my balance to the work. Whereas in Germany, for example, as to love with weather, has to, you're limited not by rain, you're limited by, by like, you, you don't realize what an influence sun or sunshine has on your productivity and all of these things. So that balance I liked from being able to really work really hard but have the balance still in your day. Albers is really active in the startup community in the UAE. He mentors, leads workshops, often sponsors entrepreneurial events. And, he says, he plans to be in Dubai for another six years at least. So what do you see when you look around the startup landscape in the UAE? I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs. I think there's a, there's a lack of exciting startups. There's, there's a bunch, but there's still only a few are, in my opinion, exciting enough. What do you mean? Like, they, they are strong enough or they have opportunity or they have great business models. In my opinion, there could be more, more, more of that. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know, quality of entrepreneurs, early, still learning. Region doesn't allow it. Region doesn't allow it. That's one of the main reasons. And it still lacks in terms of support as the Forest ecosystem. Artists. The official support from the government, from the infrastructure, it's not there yet. It's still not yet. No. This is Bahir. Call him a veteran entrepreneur. He moved to the UAE from his home country of Syria 11 years ago and, by many accounts, has seen it all when it comes to starting a business. So we're on? We're on. Yes, my name is Bahir Al-Hakim. I'm a tech guy, an entrepreneur. 
I studied as a dentist, but I never got to practice because my heart has always been intact. I wanted to drop from school, but I couldn't. My father wouldn't let me. Like he wouldn't, uh, it was like a, he, he would throw me out of the house if I drop, uh, drop out and do technology. So we reached a compromise, which is to finish school and then do whatever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> so I did finish school. And then after I graduated, I uh, put my license in the drawer and then I did whatever I wanted to do. Behud runs a software development company called CloudAppers. And he's helped build multiple companies out of Dubai over the years. From the personal finance app Wally, the world's highest rated personal finance app in 2014, to Restaurant, the most popular social dining platform in the UAE, among others. You think the ecosystem in the UAE is still not at a level to support startups? No. I mean, it's very expensive to incorporate really expensive to incorporate it's expensive uh, the, the salaries are high i mean if you have an idea and you're not sure whether it's going to work in dubai you have you can't work without a visa so you have to pay at least 25000 dirhams just to incorporate get a bank account and then get a visa that's really expensive i mean anywhere else in the world for, you, you don't sometimes you can get a visa you don't need a visa if you uh, you can be on a tourist visa 6 months for example if you go to lebanon and you don't need an incorporation. You can just have side agreements with people to do this. You can't do that here. You, you don't have people that are just like exploring things here. You need a visa and the, uh, the living expenses are so much that you can't sustain yourself even if you have savings. You have to have a job, especially the first year, year and a half. It's, 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 an, it's an ongoing experiment because you have an idea and you have assumptions of this, this need can be met by this product with those features. But it, but but you rarely hit hit it uh, on the spot with the with the right product for the right market. So it's a matter of experiment. By the the first time you get the product out, it might be two to three months. You might find out that you're targeting the wrong market, so you switch to a different market, and then the whole product, will, the product will change almost sixty percent of it. So that's even more months spent on development. So this is really expensive. So it's not an ideal place for a startup unless you're a, a well-funded startup. But to experiment and like play th with things here, this is not the right place. Unless you're a well-funded startup. So what is it like fundraising in the UAE? How is, it, how is the investment space? What are the VCs, the venture capital firms look like? Unfortunately, a lot of VCs in this region are, first of all, there's only a handful. And a lot of them are a lot of talk. Um, do you think that? Yeah, I know that. How do you know that? I'm, I know them. But it's pretty obvious if you look at all of all of them, even what they publicly offer, what they publicly say, the number of investments they do, it's unspeakable. It's like two a year, three a year. It's. I think they should have higher requirements than that. Even. Is that? Do you think that's more of a function of the quality of the businesses to invest in, or is it? As well, but the big main part is that they're very risk averse. They don't want to take risks. This part is getting better, better, especially in the past couple of years. Uh, it's still difficult. It depends on the type of business you have. I mean, if you have a revenue generating business that target the region, then you have a lot of investors to choose from. You won't have an issue. But if you're trying, I mean, this is something that we struggled with in when we did Wally and we tried to raise money for Wally, which is trying to build a global product out of the region is hard. Because, I mean, everyone was asking us how we're making money. We're not making money. I mean, the, the whole game when you try to build a global scalable business is focus on the product and on acquiring users and then worry about making money later. This didn't, didn't, fit, didn't fit with our uh, system of investors here. 
can never build a business that's user-based, right? As long as you have revenues, you won't get funding. If you don't have funding, you will die. For example, you could have you could have never built an Instagram here, because Instagram didn't make any revenue for the first three years. It still don't make revenue, right? The only reason they could survive is because the market was allowing them to give enough funding for them to grow. But in this market, it's impossible to get that funding. Because so they only look at revenues. They look at revenues for sure. Innovative companies going global don't come out of here. It's impossible. The infrastructure isn't allowed. Which is which is also understandable from the investor. I mean, we Why? we we Why? complain about it and we curse the reason for not supporting this. But at the same time, I mean, they don't have deep pockets. At least the investors, the VCs, the tech investors, they don't have deep pockets because with those businesses, you have to, sometimes you spend hundreds of millions of dollars before you see a penny, and it's all a big risk. For people in Europe and the States, this is a small amount of money. They can afford to lose all of it. But in here, they can't. I mean, the, the, the total funds that all of the VCs have wouldn't, wouldn't exceed three, $400 million in here. What? Seriously? Yeah. To put things in perspective, six months of investment activity in Silicon Valley in 2014 saw 11.6 billion U.S. dollars in over 800 deals. I don't think they have more than 500 million. This is about it. And this is, the, uh, this is the total funds, so this is not just what, this will probably be deployed over years. How do you reconcile that with the perception that there is so much wealth in the region, especially in the Gulf? You have a lot of wealthy families, but they're just not putting their money in startups? Yeah, because they don't understand startups, they don't understand tech. I wouldn't expect the, the investors that can buy a land or fund a hotel, and the, the model is predictable, they've seen it happen, it's been happening for tens of years. So the big money goes towards those things, tourism, real estate, hospitality, but tech, no. The market's too early. There's only been three or four exits, right? Only, obviously. In the UAE or across the world? region? The first one was Maktoub to, to Yahoo. Then there was GoNabbit to oh, Living Social. Yeah. Before that, there was like this Kobone to Tiger. And there was Talabad. And then last week was Yemexipity, which is in Turkey. Yemek Sepeti, which is another company of Food or Click, similar as Taliban. Biggest acquisition in the region. Really? Yeah. Ever. <laughs> but so these things. A, that's like four or five. That's five in total, where I've two were in the last three months. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that's not yeah. a good indicator to put money in here because at the end of the day, it's all about return on investment. The cycle for a tech startup kind of goes like this you build a product, focus on gaining users. Maybe you make money, maybe you don't, but you focus on gaining users. Think of the icons, the Twitters, Facebook, Instagram. The more users you have, the more you're able to monetize off of things like advertising or selling the behavioral data of your users. All this while, you need funds to keep supporting your growth because you're hiring a larger team to support your larger user base. And then you exit, the end of the line for a startup, when you sell off your business and all that value you've been creating is rewarded financially. Some IPO, meaning they do a public exit and open up their company to the public stock exchange. For example, when Twitter IPO'd in 2013, they were valued at $24 billion after six years of essentially bleeding cash. And Twitter is a unicorn of an example, the kind of startup everyone strives towards. But statistically, 80% never even scratch the mark. Well, it's like a vicious circle, right? You don't put money in there, you don't allow the businesses to grow, you don't allow the businesses to grow, they cannot exit. And just as the UAE as a nation is changing rapidly in its newness, so too is the startup ecosystem. You see groups cropping up focused on educating investors and encouraging riskier and smarter investments in startups. One group that launched in the UAE last year is Wamina, a women's angel investment network, co-founded by Elisa, whom you heard from at the beginning of our show. Yeah, so about six weeks in, Chantal and I move 
here, and we're working on what was then called United Arab Angels, which we thought was a super cool name <laughs> at the time, and now we know better. So we look at Middle East-based startups. They don't have to be run by women. Uh, we want to bring the best quality deal flow. We include men, we include women, we include the Middle East, uh, excluding Iran, including Turkey. We look at businesses that are raising anywhere between about $150,000 to $650,000, right? So that, that seed stage growth capital before their Series A. We will and we have gone into bigger rounds of a million or 1.5. We've had 14 companies present in front of our members. Of those 14, we've had two funded. That's awesome. In our, it's not even been a year. We just hit it at full speed and one event a month. Yeah. Who the hell does one event a month? We did one event a month. I barely slept, but we did one event a month, right? And that totally kind of upped the game. You know, the whole point of this is to get women investing in startups and women are investing in startups and investors are starting to get more savvy, at least on our side, right? It's all about education. We provide education. Before every pitch event, there's a workshop and every workshop covers a different element and we talk about weight, you know, it's all about that patience and it's so difficult. The biggest issue that's facing investors and investor groups in the Middle East right now is awareness. Yeah. People don't know it's an option, regardless of gender. They don't know what the hell this is. They know investing as in stocks or investing like in real estate now it's starting to change so we got very lucky and i'm not saying this is wamina's story i'm saying it's a region's story is we came in right as this big wave started growing right as all of a sudden okay like now we're now we got four angel groups in dubai all right now we've got three incubators we've got a fourth one coming up like things are starting things are heating up like people mean business right Okay, so we're filling in pieces and different opinions of this picture of what it's like starting a business in the UAE. And we've heard that the startup landscape is changing. Investors are becoming savvier, more and more incubators are coming onto the scene, but that doesn't change the facts that we mentioned earlier, that building a business in the UAE is very expensive. In fact, the UAE ranks 23rd in the world in terms of how expensive a city it is. Then where does Dubai and the UAE at large fit into the startup landscape of the Middle East? What, what do you think needs to change? Or what, what would you hope would change uh, Dubai? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that Dubai can change in that regard because the, uh, Dubai is a place for serious people. And entrepreneurs, they never start in it with something serious. They start by playing. And Dubai is not, a, is not the, the way Dubai is built it's just not a playground. It's an expensive place. I was reading the other day about how cheap it is to move your team and build a startup from Bangkok. You can get a studio for $300, an amazing studio. You can, uh, the, the, the salaries of uh, the kick-ass developers there that you get here for 20, 25,000 dirhams, you can get them there for $1,000. It's even cheaper than the Middle East and Bangkok. And it's an amazing place. It's fun, it's cheap, the food is cheap, everything's cheap. So you, can, you get to play there. And whenever you have something serious, then you can move and build build it from here. So I don't think, I mean, the, the, the way Dubai is built, I don't think it can support this. It can't be a playground. So I, I, I wouldn't expect it to change. I would, this is what I always advise entrepreneurs like Egyptians, Lebanese, build it from there. Once you validate the business and you're successful and you, you're fairly certain you can raise money, then move to Dubai. 
And this is where Dubai becomes essential in the region. Dubai is the best place to build a scalable business and to scale it from here. It is so interesting because so many of the entrepreneurs I've spoken with across the region have headquarters here in Dubai, or they're so excited to build their offices here because there's this perception that things work better, it's easier here, you have a much more mature ecosystem than you have elsewhere in the region. But by the mature ecosystem, what, what they mean is access to investors because you have the investors here, correct? And you can speak to them. And it's, it, it's a bit unfair that many investors, they don't take people from outside Dubai seriously. So if you're a Dubai-based company, you have, it's, it's more authority. It means that you're more serious because you spent a lot of money, which is unfair. I find that so fascinating. Okay, I was just speaking about this the other day in terms of how each of the cities have certain branding. So it's sexier to have your company incorporated in London, for instance, but you have sort of the face in London and the and a friend of mine said this, you said you have the face in London, but you have the guts in Amman, for example, because it's a lot cheaper to operate your company in Amman. I mean, you have Cloud Appers, for example, the team is all in Beirut. And what, what we have here is we have, a, I mean, compared, we have 15% of the team in Dubai and 85% of the team in Beirut. So uh, we're here basically to represent the team in Beirut. <laughs> when you look at city brands on the global stage, Dubai is very strong. And as a startup based in Dubai, the strength of that city brand spills into the image of your business. It's the reason entrepreneurs like Bahir, Alborz, Elisa, if they're building a business in the Middle East, they want it to be associated with Dubai. The Dubai brand is the, um, the marketing and access to market. The Dubai brand is the marketing and access to market. Yeah, so if uh, the, uh, I mean, the biggest businesses that operate throughout the whole region, they have the head, their headquarters in Dubai. So you can, if you talk to them, you can solve one of their problems that uh, scales across the whole region. So you can do business in here. If you go to the same brand in Lebanon, you probably work with them across the Lebanese borders. You wouldn't do something for outside. Mm. So because they, the, the, the biggest businesses that are headquartered in Dubai, so you get to do bigger volumes and each project is of a bigger scale because of the offices in Dubai overseeing the whole region. The Dubai, in terms of the region, it leads it. So any product that gets adopted in Dubai, it trickles down to other places in the Middle East. If you do something in Lebanon, people don't talk about you. But if you do something in Dubai, people in Lebanon and in Syria and in Jordan talk about you. I mean, why would a company do something in New York or London or San Francisco? Because you have the press, you have the global press based out of there. So when you have the TechCrunch's offices, when you have something happening down from the TechCrunch's offices, they'll definitely talk about it rather than having something happen uh, in, a, in a state where you don't have tech journalism. It's the same in Dubai. The regional press, it's being done in Dubai. So if you're building something in here, you'll get a, a TV interview with CNBC or the NBC. But if you do something in Lebanon, you probably won't get this uh, luxury. So you have, this is why if you do something here uh, and the region, the Dubai talks about you, everyone knows about you. This is why the marketing access. So if you make a splash here, then you'll, uh, this splash for free will trickle down to, uh, to other places. But if you do something in other places, it doesn't go <laughs> upstream to Dubai. Because of Dubai's influence as uh, a center of new things and innovation. That's one of the things that's so remarkable about the city is that they've really done such a good job marketing themselves. And I mean, like, I remember learning that there's even an office within the Dubai government solely dedicated to figuring out what world records exist such that they can break them. Dubai is the tallest building in the world. It has the largest mall. It shut off the largest fireworks display two years ago. And when you think about it, Dubai, despite common misperception about the Gulf region, Dubai is not an oil-based economy. And so they've positioned themselves more as a financial and tourism hub. 
And for that to be successful, they've really, at every level, put concerted effort in figuring out how to put Dubai on the world map. I mean, they managed to con- to uh, convince Apple to open their biggest uh, store in the world in uh, Mall of the Emirates. And you have the biggest uh, cheesecake factory in Dubai. I mean, like, I shake my head, but it's brilliant. It's, I mean, it's... It's, it's working. Yeah, it's working. I think the thing to remember is that Dubai is such a new city. It's constantly evolving. So whatever we may say about the startup scene in the UAE, by design, that's susceptible to change. And when you have such a malleable environment, your residents can really influence the city's trajectory. I feel it here. Like you can actually make an impact because you're playing in an undersaturated market that has a global footprint. When you have a new city that's as young as I am, yeah. Right? It's like 25, 30 years old, really. Um, then every person that starts an initiative here and really works at it and, and sends emails when they say they're going to send emails and fills out paperwork when they say they're going to fill out the paperwork can really get noticed and can, and can build a business here. Yeah. Um, I, I can't believe that in two years I've been able to get to where I am and a lot of people that I know make such a difference in such a small amount of time here just because we are the ones that are creating that culture. And this concludes this episode of Kerning Cultures. If you're interested to hear more stories about what it's like starting companies across the Middle East, be sure to check out the remaining episodes on kerningcultures.com and egyptianstreets.com. Until next time.